Well, this past week I was flipping through Netflix one night and I decided to rewatch a classic Tom Hanks movie called Apollo 13. Apollo 13, as many of you already know, is based on the story of three American astronauts who were sent into outer space for the purpose of exploring the moon, but ended up limping back to planet Earth in a crippled spacecraft. And after these astronauts made it home against all of the odds, it was determined there was a serious manufacturing defect in one of the oxygen tanks. One of the wires in the tank was exposed, and on their journey towards the moon, a spark from that wire caused a catastrophic explosion. It was a turn of events that brought the mission to a very disappointing conclusion. It nearly cost the astronauts their lives. Apollo 13 mission was ultimately unsuccessful because of a failure in one of the essential parts. And here in the biblical text we're going to look at this morning, the Apostle Paul will remind us that Christianity also has essential parts and features without which our mission here on earth would certainly come to a miserable end and without which the Christian faith would collapse and become entirely useless. Now one of these essential doctrines of our faith is the doctrine of resurrection. And as we continue to work our way through 1 Corinthians this morning and to trace the contours of Paul's argument in this chapter, I'd ask you to turn again in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to read this morning from verse 12 down to verse 34. Hear the word of the Lord. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then, it, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because, he, because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who fall fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who fall fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he accepted that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. Do not go on sinning. 
For some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. Thanks be to God for His inspired Word. Well, over the past two Sundays, we've taken the time to look in detail at verses 1 to 11 of this inspired chapter in God's Word, where Paul reviews the gospel message and where he reminds the Corinthians that the proclamation of salvation centers on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fundamental characteristics and content of the gospel are clearly laid out for us in the first 11 verses of the chapter, and then in verses 5, And following, Paul focuses in on the resurrection of Christ and presents a strong historical argument that is rooted in the burial of Christ, the empty tomb, and the eyewitness testimony of those who had seen it. Paul has very clearly and very intentionally focused our attention on the resurrection of Christ. And when we get to verse 12 of this chapter, we discover why this issue is so much on Paul's heart and mind. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Corinthians, as we've already mentioned in previous weeks, lived in a Greek culture and context where most people saw the physical body as something that was evil, as something that was weighing down the soul and keeping it imprisoned here on earth. For the ancient Greeks, life in the physical body was a kind of punishment or purgatory for the soul, and salvation was often presented as getting rid of the physical body and leaving the material world behind. This was the worldview taught by Plato several hundred years earlier, and it's into this context of Greek philosophy that Paul now comes with the true message of saving grace. But the message of salvation that Paul presents to the Corinthians is not about getting rid of the body. It's not about liberating the soul from the material world. Rather, Paul's focus is on the great hope of receiving a new body and then living forever in a new and restored earth where Jesus Christ will rule and reign forever. And so you can see how Christian teaching about the resurrection of the body didn't fit very well with the worldview of the ancient Greeks. This is why Paul was so rudely rejected and rebuffed when he came into Athens a few years earlier and spoke to the intellectual elites on Mars Hill. In Acts 17, verse 32, we read that when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. In this, the intellectual capital of ancient Greece, where philosophy reigned supreme, Paul's teaching about the resurrection served mainly to arouse curiosity and to invite hostility and disdain. It was one of the few cities Paul visited where we have no record of him staying for any length of, the, of time or planting a sustainable church. And it was shortly after that discouraging episode in Athens that Paul came into the city of Corinth preaching the gospel with much fear and trembling as he himself testified. But remarkably, instead of changing the gospel message in such a way that he gained a friendly response from the Greeks, Paul tells us here in this letter he embraced the foolishness of the cross. He did not make any effort to impress the Corinthians with plausible words of wisdom. Rather, Paul went into this Greek city preaching the same message that he preached everywhere else in demonstration, he says, of the spirit and of power so that the faith of the Corinthians might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul understood the gospel message was foolishness to the Greeks. It was a stumbling block to the Jews, but that didn't stop him from doing what God called him to do. 
And as we know, the Lord was faithful in this city of Corinth to save men and women through the preaching of the gospel and to establish a vibrant and thriving ministry in that, in that city. Well, several years have now passed since that first uh, episode of church planting. Pastor Paul has now moved on to a different city, but something distressing has moved into the church in Corinth. Certain members of this ancient church who had once received the gospel from Paul, who had once believed the gospel, were now in danger of abandoning the gospel. These Christians were probably sick and tired of being scoffed at, sick of being ridiculed, always having to swim upstream and against the current. And these professing Christians, under immense cultural pressure, wanted God's salvation in Jesus Christ, but they also wanted the respect and the admiration of the world. So a certain group within the church felt the best way forward was to modify the gospel message by cutting out the controversial parts. And although it doesn't seem that the Corinthians were denying the fact that Jesus himself had been raised from the dead, it does appear from this text that they were denying the fact that all believers will be resurrected in the future. These Christians wanted to affirm the first resurrection of Christ, but to deny the second resurrection of the believer. And they felt that by striking this compromise, they could have their cake and eat it too. They could get the salvation they wanted from Jesus, and they could get the respect and the admiration of the world. Suppose it's possible some of the Corinthians were falling in line with the Epicureans, denying that there was any such thing as life after death. But far more likely is that they envisioned the afterlife just as many professing Christians still envision it today. A kind of vague and fuzzy notion of disembodied souls floating around on clouds for all eternity. Now, of course, it's true as Christians. We believe that to be absent from the body is to be immediately present with the Lord. And because of that biblical conviction, we do affirm a period of time after death when we will exist in a disembodied state. Don't want to minimize that truth at all. But nevertheless, according to the clear teaching of Scripture, this is not the way that things will always be, for we read in the Bible that one day the Lord Jesus will return to this earth and all of the bodies of God's deceased people will rise up out of their graves and will be reunited with the immaterial soul. Paul teaches us this truth in his first letter to the Thessalonians. The dead in Christ will rise first and meet the Lord along with all of us who are alive and remain. And then as the greeting party for our king, we will immediately descend and escort him back to the earth where he will rule and reign forever. The Christian hope, brothers and sisters, is not to live forever in a disembodied state, floating around on clouds and playing harp somewhere off in the sweet by and by. The Christian hope is to live on a restored earth with physical, glorified bodies under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's why as Christian people, whenever we stand at the graveside of one of our brothers and sisters, we don't mourn as those who have no hope. We mourn and we grieve in the hope and the confidence that we will see loved ones again, that we will walk and talk with them in new and glorified bodies. We have the hope of Christians of living in a recreated world that is forever free from the tyranny of sin. Resurrection to new life in God's eternal kingdom is our ultimate hope as Christians. But the Corinthians had started to go soft on this truth, envisioning the afterlife as some kind of eternal disembodied state. 
Well, it was into this context of theological confusion that Paul writes this chapter showing us that the resurrection is not an optional add-on that we can take or leave at our own leisure. This is an essential and a non-negotiable part of the gospel without which the Christian mission is meaningless and without which the Christian faith is foolish. And as Paul unpacks his argument here in verses 12 to 20, 34, he is going to reveal for us the logical consequences that flow out of a denial of resurrection. And then secondly, Paul will lift our spirits with the glorious promise of life in a restored world that has no sin. The issue confronting the Apostle Paul here in this chapter is a denial of future resurrection. And for the sake of argument, Paul is going to begin his rebuttal by assuming the Corinthian teaching about resurrection is true. Those of you who like to watch debates, or perhaps those of you who like to debate yourselves, will know that one effective way to engage an opponent in debate is to unveil the logical consequences of the position that they're defending. Perhaps a position that they have accepted and internalized without taking the time to fully think it through. You know, almost every day now, as I scan through the news headlines, as I scroll through social media, as I see the ridiculous things that people say and believe, it becomes patently obvious to me many members of our society accept trendy ideas, internalize popular academic theories without ever thinking through the logical and the moral consequences. Here in Canada, the country that I love, we are now flirting with some very dangerous social experiments when it comes to issues of gender, language, sexuality, and freedom of conscience and expression. And it is alarming to me how some of these ideas are being brought into our institutions, even enshrined into law, without fully thinking through the long-term consequences of what we're doing. Like the Corinthians of old, we are playing a dangerous game when we begin to accept ideas, when we begin to implement radical changes without thinking things through, without considering what the long-term outcome will be. Now, I have no doubt in reading this chapter that some of the Corinthians who are denying the doctrine of resurrection were well-intentioned in their denial. I believe that some of these Corinthians had a sincere love for non-Christians and wanted to do everything they could do to make the gospel appealing and believable. That's how liberal Christianity got its start 250 years ago. Some well-intentioned but misguided men who thought they needed to rescue the Christian faith from its cultured and intellectual despisers. And you know something? I believe many people in our own day are trying to save the Christian faith through the same misguided technique, emphasizing the parts of the Bible that appeal to the non-believer, neglecting the parts of the Bible that tend to cause offense. And so if people today are put off by all this talk of Christ's blood cleansing us from sin, we don't talk about the blood anymore in the church, and instead we preach a false gospel of self-esteem. And if people around us are offended by the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ, we tone things down a little bit. We tell them that Jesus is our way to the Father, but not necessarily the way to the Father. And if people think that the sexual morality in the Bible is old-fashioned and oppressive, we either tell them that Paul and the apostles were fallible and prejudiced men of their times, or else we twist the Scriptures to make them mean what they do not say. 
Friends, it's no exaggeration. In our own time, in our own culture, we are downplaying essential elements of the Christian faith because well-intentioned people in the church think that they know better than the Holy Spirit and think that they need to do the job of the Holy Spirit. And under the constant barrage of secular culture that is growing more hostile by the day, many of us have become ashamed of the Gospel. Many of us have become ashamed of the Bible. Many of us have somehow come to the conclusion that God has a reputation problem that we in our human wisdom need to fix. In some ways, we are not all that different from the Corinthians. The temptations that we face today in our culture are, not, not, are pretty much the same. And sometimes what we need to do in the face of these challenges is just to stop, to think things through biblically and logically and rationally. We need to stop and we need to think before we say and before we do foolish things that empty the Gospel of its power and sacrifice the truth of God on the altar of relevance and seeker sensitivity. This is what the Apostle Paul is doing here for the Corinthians as a concerned pastor. He's forcing them to stop, to examine their beliefs before they make a fatal mistake. And the first step Paul takes in challenging their worldview is to tell them in verse 13, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. These verses summarize Paul's entire argument. They are so important, he repeats himself a second time in verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Somehow these Corinthians had come to think that they could separate the past resurrection of Jesus Christ from the future resurrection of all believers. Somehow, they, they thought they could make the gospel more appealing to the Greeks by keeping the first resurrection, but by throwing out the second one. But Paul is now going to show them, both logically and theologically, this is something they absolutely cannot do. Because in a sense, denying the future resurrection is a bit like standing out on the end of a tree branch and then sawing it off. It is a theological move that will turn out to be fatal, not only for their own eternal soul, but also for the Christian witness in the world. And a great deal of Paul's argument here in chapter 15 is devoted to showing that the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of the believer, are part of the same package. In other words, you cannot have one without the other. If you want to believe in Christ's resurrection, you've also got to believe in our future resurrection and vice versa. Because the Bible's teaching on resurrection is a package deal. It cannot be divided and divvied up. We're not standing here in a theological buffet line where you get to pick and choose. You either take all of it or you take none of it. While well, making his case for the resurrection, Paul has presented a watertight argument in verses 1-11, to and he has done this in order to remind the Corinthians the future resurrection is possible because a past resurrection really occurred. Okay? A future resurrection is possible because a past resurrection occurred. From a strictly logical and rational standpoint, it will simply not do to affirm that Jesus rose from the dead and then to turn around and deny the possibility that any of His followers would ever rise from the dead. At the very minimum, we would need to admit that one legitimate instance of resurrection opens the possibility for more resurrections. 
And if the Corinthians are going to join hands with the pagans and declare the resurrection to be absurd, they ought to be logically consistent and deny the resurrection of Christ. You see what Paul is doing here in this text, friends? He is using reason and logic to back the Corinthians into a corner. There is a logical, rational connection between the past resurrection of Christ and the future resurrection of the believer. And if you want to deny the possibility of one, you need to be logically consistent and deny the possibility of the other. The basic logic behind Paul's argument. But notice, he goes much further than this. He provides theological evidence that these two events must either stand or fall together. And we see some of this evidence in verses 20 to 23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who fall in the sleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those be- who belong to Christ. Against these compromising Corinthians who wanted to pick and choose their doctrines, Paul is now going to present a strong theological argument. These two events must either stand together or fall together. And of course, the theological principle here is solidarity. There is a solidarity between Jesus Christ and his followers so that Christ's death at Calvary becomes our death, so Christ's resurrection becomes our resurrection. That's why Paul can say elsewhere, I have been, am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, friends, in the New Testament, there is a fundamental identification between Jesus Christ and his followers so that we Christians are united to him in both his death on the cross and in his resurrection from the tomb. And here in verses 20 to 23, Paul wants to illustrate this solidarity in two different ways. First, by showing us that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, and then by drawing a parallel between Adam and Christ, who are the two great representatives of humanity. Well, considering, first of all, this concept of Jesus as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, we need to understand the biblical context of this word and image. One of the Jewish festivals described for us in the Old Testament is called the Feast of the First Fruits. And during this yearly celebration, the first sheaf of barley that was harvested from the field would be brought to the temple and consecrated to God. Now the idea behind this agricultural offering was to thank God for the harvest even before it was fully reaped. For the Jewish farmer knew that if one sheaf of barley was produced at the very beginning of the growing season, many more sheaves would soon follow so that the barn would be full of abundant grain and so the dinner table would have food on it. A harvest is not produced all of the sudden in a single day. A harvest progresses over a number of days and weeks and even months. And because of this, it is silly to think about the first fruits of the harvest as being totally distinct from everything else that's to come. Quite to the contrary, that first sheaf of barley is part of the harvest. It's a guarantee of the harvest. The same thing is true of Christ's resurrection. Here in our text, Paul refers two times to Jesus as the first fruit. And that is simply Paul's way of showing us the resurrection is a package deal. 
Out in the farmer's fields, there is a solidarity between the individual sheaves. In like manner, there is solidarity between Jesus Christ and his followers, so that what is true of Christ is also true of us, who've been united to him by grace alone through faith. So Paul uses, first of all, an agricultural image to illustrate this principle of solidarity. But secondly, Paul draws a comparison in the text between Adam and Jesus who are two great representatives of the human race. And we see this in verse 21. For as by a man came death, so by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Once again, the principle Paul is driving at here in this illustration is representation and solidarity. There is a fundamental truth from God's word... This is a fundamental truth from God's Word. It helps us to understand our sinful condition as humanity. And it also helps us understand our glorious redemption. See, friends, way back in the Garden of Eden, the first created man, Adam, was representing not only himself and his wife Eve, but the entire human race who would eventually descend from him. Biblically speaking, there is a sense in which all of humanity was on trial that day in the Garden of Eden as Adam was given the choice to obey God's Word and live or to disobey God's Word and die. We know from the first, chapter, first few chapters of Genesis, Adam chose to rebel against the Creator and in that rebellion, he plunged the entire human race into a state of sinfulness and total depravity. In that moment of disobedience, when Adam ate the forbidden fruit, Adam died spiritually, but he also began the grim process of physical death and decay. And although Adam continued to live for many years on the earth after that first sin, eventually Adam's lifeless body was put into the grave, just as our lifeless bodies will one day be put into graves. That's what Paul means here in our text when he says that in Adam all die. There is a fundamental solidarity between Adam and the rest of the human race so that Adam's disobedience in the garden paradise becomes the first fruit of our disobedience and so Adam's spiritual and physical death becomes the first fruits of our spiritual and physical death. Technical term for this is federal theology. It's the biblical teaching that Adam was acting as our representative or as our federal head. And if Adam's disobedience and rebellion was the end of the story, this would be very bad news indeed for the human race, for we would all come into the world alienated from God, and we would all exit the world alienated from God with absolutely no hope of salvation. But thanks be to God, this is not the end of the story. For even though Adam and Eve rebelled against the Creator in the Garden of Eden and came under the curse of sin and death, God established in that garden a covenant of grace with Adam. As a consequence of their rebellion, God killed the first animal. And then He used the skins of that animal to cover up their naked bodies, a gruesome and physical reminder that the wages of sin is death. The very first animal sacrifice was offered in the Garden of Eden by God Himself. And for centuries after that original sin, God required animal sacrifice as a temporary covering for sin. The life of an innocent animal being substituted for the guilty human. And God indicated throughout the century and millennia that these animal sacrifices were a picture of something He was planning to do in order to reverse the terrible effects of Adam's sin. 
God had a plan to save a remnant of fallen humanity, to bring them back into a right relationship with Himself. And as we know, the ultimate sacrifice to end all sacrifices was offered at Calvary. It was not a spotless lamb or animal, but a sinless human being dying as the sin substitute for other humans. Jesus was sent into our world as the second Adam. He was a second representative who would succeed gloriously where the first Adam had failed miserably. The first Adam brought death and damnation to the human race. The second Adam from above brings life and salvation to all who believe. He comes with the promise of eternal life, saying at the tomb of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies, and whosoever lives and believes in me will never die. And so the Apostle Paul tells us in verse 22, As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. You see the point here in the text about representation and solidarity. Adam represents all of humanity, but Jesus Christ represents all of the saved and chosen remnant. Now we need to pause here for a moment. We need to think this through carefully. For there are some Christians who've taken Paul's teaching here in 1 Corinthians 15 and the parallel passage in Romans 5 and have concluded that the group of people represented by Adam in his disobedience is the exact same group of people represented by Christ in his obedience. In other words, some would argue that the all in Adam is the same group of people as the all in Christ. And I want to suggest to you this morning, this point of view is extremely problematic. For if we want to argue that all will be made alive in Christ in the sense of every individual who's ever lived, we actually fall into a form of universalism. Universal salvation. Because if it is true that Christ died as a sin substitute for every individual who's ever lived, it logically follows that every person who's lived is forgiven of sin and on their way to heaven. To die as a sin substitute for a person and then to condemn that same person to an eternity in hell is what we call today in legal terms double jeopardy. And since the Bible is crystal clear that hell will be populated with unrepentant sinners, it is not possible that the all in Christ refers to every human being who's ever lived. Paul is not teaching in this chapter some form of universalism that empties out hell. His point is to establish a principle of solidarity and representation. In the Garden of Eden, Adam Adam represented the entire human race. But on the cross of Calvary, Jesus represented all of God's chosen ones, dying as a substitute for their sins and thus freeing them from the consequences of Adam's rebellion. That is why Jesus says in John 6, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And it is also why he says in John 10 that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for who? For the sheep. On the cross, Jesus represented the chosen flock of God, and he suffered in their place as their substitute. And that would include all of the Old Testament saints who look forward to His coming, trusting in the future promise of a Redeemer. And it includes all of the New Testament saints who look back on the cross, all of us who have placed our faith in the finished work of Christ. And if you today have placed your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, you can know beyond any shadow of doubt He died on that cross for you. He hung there as your sin substitute. He exchanged all of your sin 
for all of his righteousness. There is a solidarity between the Lord Jesus and his chosen flock so that his death on the cross becomes our death and so that his life becomes our life. And this unbreakable union with Jesus Christ means we cannot separate his resurrection from our our resurrection. If he rose from the dead, we will also rise from the dead. If he didn't rise from the dead, we have no hope. We won't rise from the dead. It's just as plain and as simple as that, friends. The resurrection is a package deal. It is all or it's nothing. Well, Paul has already proven his main point by establishing and by illustrating the believer's solidarity with Christ. But Paul isn't through with the Corinthians yet, and he still has a few more arguments up his sleeve. And so let's have a look again at verses 14 to 19. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who fall asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Not only does a denial of the second resurrection invalidate the first resurrection, Paul goes on to tell us here in verse 14, such a denial would make the gospel message completely pointless. If it's true, friends, that Jesus never rose from the dead as the Bible said that he did, if it's true that we will never rise from our graves on that great and future day, I'm afraid that I chose the wrong path in life and made a terrible error of judgment. If the resurrection is a myth, I would have been far better to stay in university and pursue a career in medicine because here in this pulpit, I'm wasting my life. I'm wasting my breath. I'm wasting your time. If the resurrection didn't happen, you would be much better off sleeping in on Sunday morning or going off to the shopping mall because you're here listening to a fool who spews out a steady stream of lies and fairy tales and pipe dreams. In one of his more recent books, the famous atheist Stephen Hawking said that the convention of an afterlife is a fairy tale for people afraid of the dark. And you know something? If the resurrection didn't really happen, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Stephen Hawking and his atheist buddies are 100% correct in their disdain for our faith. We Christians may be absolutely sincere in our beliefs, but if the resurrection didn't happen, you and I are sincerely wrong. Because sincerity in and of itself doesn't make something true. I have absolutely no doubt that this world is full of sincere Muslims, it's full of sincere Buddhists and sincere Hindus, but their sincerity doesn't amount to a hill of beans if their religion is false. And guess what? The same thing is true about our religion if the resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't happen. Without the resurrection of Christ, Christianity is just an opiate for the masses, as Karl Marx once said. Its only usefulness is to dull the pain in this life with delusions and fairy tales about a better life to come. But of course, that life never will if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Paul says that our preaching would be in vain. Paul says our faith would be in vain. In verse 15, he tells us the apostles would be liars and deceivers without the resurrection. 
You know, it's possible, friends, to find naive people who will believe a lie and think that it's true. But when it comes to these men called apostles, there is no room for gullibility. These guys either knew that Jesus rose from the dead and proclaimed the truth at the cost of their own lives, or else they knew that he didn't rise from the dead and they conspired with one another to pull off the greatest hoax in human history. If the resurrection is a lie and a myth, Peter, Paul, and the apostles are not good men. They are not godly men. If that's the case, they are bald-faced liars who manufactured their own religion in order to deceive and not only would the, would the apostles be liars, Jesus himself would be a liar or perhaps a deluded menace since he predicted that all of these things would take place and that his followers would rise from the dead. And so, brothers and sisters, you can appreciate how much is at stake here. We are not playing trivial games when it comes to Christianity. We are staking our lives on these things. We are staking our eternity on these things. And if this doctrine is not true, we are completely and utterly wasting our time. Now, for the Apostle Paul, this was an intensely personal issue, as we see in verses 30 to 32. Paul says in verse 30, Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain? If, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Brothers and sisters, Paul's conversion to Christianity cost him everything he had in terms of earthly comfort and gain. The Christian faith cost Paul his reputation. It cost him his pride. It very well may have cost him his own wife. In addition to that, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12 about all of the suffering that he endured for this message. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys. In danger from rivers. In danger from robbers. In danger from my own people. In danger from the Gentiles. In danger in the city. In danger in the wilderness. In danger at sea. In danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many sleepless nights. In hunger and thirst. Often without food and experience. Exposed. And apart from all of these things, there's a daily pressure on me, my anxiety for the churches. And so I would ask you this morning, as Paul puts it to the Corinthians, who in their right mind would endure that kind of hardship for something that never happened? If the resurrection was a lie, if the resurrection was fabrication, Paul's life was a colossal waste of time. It was just a life full of meaningless pain and suffering that was all for nothing. And while Paul was off fighting the proverbial beasts at Ephesus, facing mob violence, he could have been living it up with the rest of the non-believing pagans, embracing the hedonistic motto, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The dead are not raised. Our preaching is for nothing. Our faith is for nothing. Our suffering and our sacrifice is for nothing. But it gets even worse than that. For in verse 18, Paul tells us that those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if the dead are not raised. How sad, how tragic to think, brothers and sisters, if the resurrection is not true, we will never see our loved ones again who have died in the faith. Because a dead Savior cannot give life to dead men. 
So just think about this. All of the prayers, all the promises, all the assurances, all the scriptures that we offer at the funeral and graveside of a Christian believer are utterly false and vain if the resurrection is not true. Even the joyful ceremony of believer's baptism loses its meaning if the resurrection isn't true. Look at verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Paul's reference to baptism here in verse 29 is probably the most difficult and obscure verse in the entire New Testament. And because of that, nobody knows exactly what Paul's talking about. One theory is that Paul is referring here to an obscure practice in Corinth where living members of the church were being baptized by proxy for new converts who had recently died. And if that's really what's happening here in this ancient church, it's important to realize that this kind of practice is found nowhere else in the entire New Testament. We also need to realize if this was what the Corinthians were doing, it's not a practice that squares up with the doctrine of justification by faith, nor is it a practice that squares up with the fact that we, that we don't have another chance for salvation after death. The only groups that we know of in the early church who practiced proxy baptism, aside from the possibility of the Corinthians, were some of the Gnostic sects and cults in the second century. And the only modern parallel we have for this practice of baptism by proxy is found in the false religion of Mormonism. So if indeed proxy baptism is what Paul is describing in this verse, what on earth are we to make of this? Well, my answer to that difficult question is that some of the Corinthians who'd been corrupted by Greek philosophy had developed a superstitious and a quasi-magical understanding of baptism. There were members in this ancient church who thought that baptism was necessary for salvation. They even thought that baptism was necessary to save those who had died in an unbaptized state. We're probably talking about here not about anyone who died, but someone who'd become a Christian and before their baptism, maybe even in preparation for their baptism, they had died before they had a chance to be baptized. And so that's my best guess of what's going on in ancient Corinth and that's all it it is. It's a guess. But even though Paul doesn't explicitly condemn the practice, we should note carefully from the text, Paul doesn't give his approval to it either. Paul is simply making an observation here about what the Corinthians were doing in their church. And on the basis of that observation, he's going to argue that such a practice, even if it were legitimate, would be totally pointless apart from the resurrection. Now, I don't think for a moment that Paul approved a proxy baptism, and it's certainly not something we're going to start practicing here at Rosedale. But in spite of the questions we may have about this verse, Paul's point is fairly clear. Baptism has no significance and no meaning apart from the resurrection because baptism signifies our death to sin and our resurrection to new life. Baptism signifies what happens spiritually at salvation and it also prefigures what will one day happen when our physical bodies rise out of the grave. But if the resurrection is a myth, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we shouldn't waste our time dipping people in water as a sign of the resurrection, for we are only confirming them in a false and pitiful delusion. Back in the 17th century, there was a well-known French philosopher and mathematician, also Christian, named Blaise Pascal, who has left us with a well-known idea called Pascal's Wager. 
Pascal argued that a rational person should live as though God exists and should seek to believe in God and to live according to the Bible. For if, if it turns out in the end that God does not exist and the Bible is wrong, such a person will only suffer a finite loss. Perhaps they'll have to give up a bit of pleasure, a bit of luxury. Maybe they'll have to endure a little bit of deprivation or ridicule. But other than that, life will be pretty good. But if, on the other hand, God really does exist, if the Bible really is true, Pascal reasoned the same person stands to receive infinite rewards in heaven and to avoid an infinite punishment in hell. And so Pascal concluded, if you're not sure what to believe about God, it's a lot safer and a lot wiser to place your bets on Jesus than it is to take a gamble and to end up in hell. And if in the end Christianity isn't true, you've still lived a pretty good life. Now I think on the surface of things, Pascal's argument has a certain intellectual appeal to it. But all things considered... I'm not sure that Blaise Pascal understood what it means to be a Christian. Because Christianity is not about hedging your bets so you can maximize reward and minimize risk. Christianity is certainty about these things. It is a certainty that comes from God Himself as a gift of grace. To be a Christian means that you have given yourself totally to the Lordship of Christ. You have put all of your eggs in one basket. Salvation is not some kind of a wager or deal that we make with God. It is a sovereign gift of divine grace. And although Blaise Pascal said a number of things that are very true and helpful, this part of his teaching is far off the mark. The reason I know that's the case is because of what Paul says in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Stakes don't get any higher than this, brothers and sisters. If Jesus rose from the dead, the Christian faith is absolutely true. All of the sacrifice is worth it. But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Christianity is the greatest hoax in human history. And we are of all men and women most to be pitied. And so this morning I am either telling you the most important message you will ever hear in your life, or else I am telling you a fairy tale story for people who are afraid of the dark. It's either one or the other. can't be both. That's why I love Paul's confidence in verse 20. It's kind of confidence in the Word of God and the truth of God that belongs to every true believer who's been born again and granted the gift of faith. Verse 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Brothers and sisters, if you are here this morning and you've been united with Christ in His death and resurrection by trusting in Him alone, by repenting of your sin, you can go home rejoicing today. Everything the Bible says is true. Your future destiny is absolutely and irrevocably secure. For though you have not seen Him, Peter says, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, even the salvation of your soul. What a glorious confidence. What a glorious joy is ours, brothers and sisters, who have been united to the Lord Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you've never come to that point in your life of casting yourself upon the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ and saying to Him, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I would urge you, do not gamble with eternity. The evidence is strong. 
The stakes are high. The time we have left on earth is short and death is absolutely certain. And once you die, it will be too late. So I leave you this morning with these words from the book of Hebrews. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders, and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Amen.